Thanks for joining us for World of Lies. This is Purity for Life. We are driven through life by what we want. And when it comes to truth and deception, that whole concept, you cannot uh, divorce the reality of what you want in life from how you perceive truth. Because our, what we want clouds our ability to discern truth. When the biblical writers talked about the last days, one main characteristic of these times emerged. Deception on a massive scale, a global assault on truth that would deceive not only the unbelieving world, but multitudes inside the four walls of the church. I don't think that there's any question that we're living in the very last of those last days. If that's true, then there is one thing we know for sure. We are being lied to every day, all day, in a bunch of different ways. We're going to look at some of the specific ways that deception confronts all of us in later episodes, but today we want to look at the truth about deception what it is, how it works, why people are deceived. I'm your host, Nate Dancer. This is Purity for Life. In a book that is about walking in truth in a world of lies, I think what most people would expect is that you would deal with very specific lies in every aspect of culture or the church or whatever and then debunk those specific lies you did do that in the first section talking about various spheres of culture but then you spent the next two sections doing something very different can you explain what and why yeah i could see why a christian seeing this book you know on the internet or whatever uh, would think, oh, okay, so this book is basically debunking the lies of the culture, and you know, it's kind of an apologetics about here's what the truth of Christianity is all about versus what the culture tells us. But that isn't what the book is about. The first section, yes, I go into some specifics about how we're constantly being lied to, but there is a purpose in that, and it's not to debunk those lies. It is simply to offer examples of how we are constantly being bombarded with falsehood and how that affects us spiritually. Mm. So that's the point of the first section. The other, the rest of the book has more to do with the Christian culture and what's going on in the Christian culture. How am I lying to myself? What lies am I believing about me, about my life in God? What is the deception of the end times? How does that look? What does that look like in our culture today, and meaning in our church culture? You know, so when I'm talking about walking in truth, it has much more to do with the reality of our life in God, living and walking with the Lord, in truth about myself, in truth about him, in the midst of overwhelming deception. That's kind of a better context of the point of the book. 
One of the things that you stressed over and over in this book is the need to take personal responsibility for lies that you believe. And (laughs) I think that to some people, this doesn't really make logical sense because, okay, let's say I'm standing on a street corner. I'm just minding my own business. And this guy comes up to me and says, hey, man, you watch my dog. I got to go into the store. They don't allow pets or whatever. So here, uh, sure, whatever. I'll, I'll just watch it for him. Five minutes later, the police come. I'm arrested in possession of drugs. This dog was carrying drugs. Now, to me, I was deceived and I'm innocent. So why is it, though, that to be deceived morally or spiritually is actually my responsibility instead of the person who's deceiving me? Okay, well, as a ex-police officer, I can tell you there has to be criminal intent for there to be a crime, okay? So you had no criminal intent. You were completely deceived by this con man, and, you know, you are innocent. And we are innocent of many of the lies that have been told to us. For instance, George Bush, when he kind of twisted the truth and so on about the need to attack Iraq. Mm -hmm. Weapons of mass destruction, and it was all a fabrication or an exaggeration of the actual facts as he knew them. So that he lied to us, and we were victimized by that. I really sincerely believed him, Mm -hmm. you know, because I thought him as a man of character. Okay, so there's that. We are victims to many lies. But... I open the first chapter of the book by talking not about deception. I talk about the inherent desires that drive every human being. We are driven through life by what we want. And when it comes to truth and deception, that whole concept, you cannot uh, divorce the reality of what you want in life from how you perceive truth. Because our what we want clouds our ability to discern truth. You know, for instance, um, a man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is going to be open to hearing all the truth of, that God has to say. But by contrast, and I give these examples in the book, by contrast, a man who's in habitual sexual sin, into pornography and all that. His mind has been just inundated with this stuff. He has a powerful desire to be uh, to participate in that. And then you start giving him some, um, you know, over-exaggerations of grace, for instance, you know, where it gets to the place of antinomianism, meaning it's okay to sin and God covers you, you know, he's not worried about it. Mm -hmm. He's going to be very susceptible to that lie because he's driven by what he wants. Mm. So you see the difference where you can be innocent and receive a lie or because of what's inside you wanting something that isn't uh, lawful, uh, that you would be open to deception and that is on you because your heart is not right. Let's go back to the story about me being deceived by that con man. That was one moment in time I was deceived and there were some consequences to me, even though I was acquitted. But for most people, it's not that obvious 
take someone, for example, who they grow up, they believe in hell. Ten years down the line, they don't believe in hell, and now they believe that all religions lead to the same God. So to them, they believe that they, not that they're being deceived, but that they're being enlightened. How does that process happen inside of a person, that there could be that dramatic of a shift, and they think, I'm, further, I'm closer to the truth than I've ever been? Okay, well, like I talked about in the book, um, the Bible uses terms like walking in. Walking in the truth is a biblical phrase, in fact, um, to describe a person's lifestyle. And, you know, you think of 70 years of life or whatever, and maybe the last 30 or lived as a Christian or whatever. So you have that period of time. And over that period of time, something is happening here and there. You're making decisions every day and things that you do, things that you listen to, things that you subject yourself to. And all of that is affecting you. We are living in constant flex morally speaking and spiritually speaking. We are, you're not a, a stationary, you know, thing. You, you are living in a constant flex of, determined by your decisions. Hmm. We need an anchor of truth, which is the word of God. And so you have to be so tied into that and determined to obey the the word that is the anchor to truth that is immovable it's a mountain it's just a rock it is not going anywhere there is no flex in god's truth we're all over the place by our emotions and so on um, so a person that starts here and ends up way out of whack it's because they were making choices along the way that little by little took them um off the straight and narrow and way, I mean, you know, by the time you get 10 years later, you can be really in trouble. And I think that's how it happens. Hmm. The, the piece of, of that that's most concerning to me is that in that process, it's like there's something happening on the subconscious level that is then being revealed in the conscious level. How do you get down to that subconscious level so that you can know what's happening there so you don't end up way off track? Well, all I can tell you is that subconscious level is your will. And we all have a free will. We have the choice to decide uh, to do the right thing or the wrong thing. Okay, so when you want something that is pushing you in a direction, that is also part of your will. You know, in fact, the very word desire and will are the same word in the Greek, hmm. you know, so they both are describing the two sides of the same coin, desire and will. So what you desire in life is propelling you forward in life and is causing you to make certain decisions underneath the surface. And then up here on this surfacey level, you can tell yourself all kinds of things, but there's a disconnect between that and this. Mm -hmm. You know, so up here you are flattering yourself and making yourself, um, at least in your own mind, seem way better off than you really are spiritually. 
when in the reality, what God is seeing in your heart that is really going on is you are in lust for whatever it is, whatever idolatry, form of idolatry it is. And that's what's propelling you in life. And that is what is causing you to make the decisions that you are making. But you're because you're not being honest with yourself and you're, there's a disconnect. Yeah. So you can lie to yourself and get away with whatever you want to get away with. And that's what's happening in multitudes of professing Christians. I mean, I've been here for 12 years. And how many times have I heard you emphasize time in the word and time in prayer, that real connection with God? Is that what's happening in that morning time or or whatever you set aside is is your will being affected so that that brings forth fruit is that's what happening if down on this level the primary desire in your life okay i've got different kinds of lusts and stuff going on inside me but the primary drive of my life is i want to obey god That is where I want to go. I am hungering and thirsting for right living before the Lord. And and so because that is the primary drive of my life, when I'm spending time with God, I'm going into the Word. And when I read a verse that convicts me about one of those areas of lust or sinful desire or something, I'm coming under conviction and I'm repenting to the Lord. And that's what keeps me right Hmm. inside. And, um, you know, in prayer, same thing. You know, when I am being propelled primarily towards obeying God in my heart, then when I'm in prayer, my ears will hear the Lord speaking and I will sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit if I'm getting out of whack in some way or another. And it happens. It does happen to me. Definitely. But the Lord is quick and he's, he helps me, you know, and he helps me to stay on the straight and narrow. So, I mean, that's my testimony. And I think that people who uh, aren't so concerned about right living with God are susceptible to deception. Anytime a person is confronted with a specific truth, he's going to do one of two things. Embrace it or reject it. And that rejection happens, I'm sure, in a number of different ways. If you could see into a person's heart who is rejecting the truth, and obviously thereby being deceived, what would you see inside that person? I get what you're saying, but my problem with your illustration is this. How often are Christians really being confronted with truth? Hmm. That's, you know, the reality is most preachers have learned to become very diplomatic because they are tired of getting emotionally beaten down by angry parishioners, you know. So they have so softened the message so people won't get mad at them, you know. I don't know the right and wrong of what they're doing. That's not my point, but... First of all, are they even being confronted with truth? Hmm. Secondly, let's say they're reading the Bible and it says, you know, okay, let's just use in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus said, you have heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. So what does a man do with that, a Christian man? And um, typically what happens inside of a man who is driven by other desires is that he has already built in place, or maybe he has gotten it from false teachers, which there is an abundance of today in the church. You know, all the different little ways that we can discount what Jesus is saying. Jesus is making a very clear statement. He's saying, if you give over to this, you are in trouble spiritually. And he talks about plucking out eyes, cutting off your right hand. I mean, I think the inference is clear on what he's referring to. He doesn't mean physically, literally doing that, but he is talking about a radical transformation, a radical severing of things from your life. That is the Christian life. That is life in God's kingdom. But we've had so many layers of explaining it away and softening the message to where the truth is hardly even brought forth to the typical mm. Christian anymore to bring that conviction mm. because he it has been so um, explained away that it's no longer has any teeth to it. Mm. So, yeah, what goes on inside of him? I think primarily he's been taught how to lie to himself, and so that's the avenue he takes. The thing that strikes me when you say that is that there's a moment in time where a person is confronted by the truth, but how they respond in that moment could be predicated by what happened yesterday or the day before or the day before or 10 years ago. And so it's almost like where I am now could require a lot of work by the Holy Spirit to get me to the point where I even conf am confronted by the truth in, in a meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was saying that we are a product of our past, really, you know, and if you've been lied to and lied to and you bought into those lies way back 10 years ago, eight years ago, five years ago, you are putting layer after layer after layer of deception into your own heart and creating a receptive, a receptive um, environment for a falsehood to be accepted hmm. and acted on. So, you know, that's why it's so important that we get a grasp of truth. Um, yes, biblical truth, orthodox um, beliefs and, and all that. But more than that is what is the Lord really saying to me yeah. as a believer? And I have got to be in complete um, connection with God's reality about where I am and who I am. Yeah. That's the important thing. Yeah, it really emphasizes the need. Psalm 139, search me, try me, know me, my anxious thoughts. See if there's a wicked way in me and then lead me in your way. And that's a prayer from a sincere heart. Do you believe that you need God in order to have life? I would guess that you would say, yes. But let me ask the question again, and this time, think about your life. The way you live, the way you think, the way you make decisions, what you desire and what you pursue. So in light of that, 
Does your life prove that you believe you need God in order to have life? Pastor Steve said that human beings are driven through life by what they want. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but to me, this means that having the right desires is extremely important. If we have the wrong ones, we end up in horrible places. And as we go through this series, we're seeing clearly that our church culture is not confronting us enough with the vital importance of cultivating and guarding the desires of our hearts. We'll look at this more in our next segment, but first, I wanted to understand more of what's really going on in the human heart. Why is it that we are so driven by what we desire to the point where we'd be willing to destroy ourselves to get what we want? I've brought longtime friend of the ministry, evangelist Glenn Meldrum, into the studio to discuss this with me today. Glenn, Pastor Steve talked about the human will, that the will is really what is driving our everyday decisions. And so if we're not rooted in God's truth, our will can bring forth desires that uh, lead us astray and into sin. And I wanted to get your perspective on this. Why do you think God made us this way? I mean, why create us to be driven by desires that come out of our will if it would be so dangerous for us potentially? Well, I think it's going to really be something we have to go back to the beginning of Genesis and the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had desires. They had a will. But in that state, it was perfect. It was without fault uh, until they gave in to sin. And then what happened with the will is there was a perverting of it, a twisting of it, a altering of that that became selfish in nature. So now as fallen human beings, we have a will that has been twisted and perverted that produced these evil desires within us. Mm -hmm. But another aspect of this that I think that's important is without a will, there'd be no ability to love. But with that free will comes the ability to choose wrong or to choose right. And so we understand the story of Adam and Eve and how sin entered into the world. Mm -hmm. But it was that will that was necessary so that they could choose. And so that's why the will is there. And is it dangerous? Absolutely. Mm. If it's not brought under the rule of God, it can do us untold damage. But if our will and desires are brought under his will, then they are able to be used for good and for even the glory of God. Mm. Clearly, there are desires that are against God's will. Sexual sin is an obvious one. That's something that we deal with every day in the uh, men that come to us for help. But it seems like, this is my experience for sure, and the, mo- and the uh, experience I've heard from many people, the more you mature as a Christian, you start realizing that you can sin in much more subtle ways. For instance, we all have a, a strong desire for good things, for family, for food. We want to work hard. We want a good reputation. But if we're not careful, these desires can begin to control us and they begin to even replace God. So where's the line? How, like, where does something cross from being a good desire to be, uh, come something that could lead us into a very bad place? Well, I would probably say the place I'd like to start would be with Susanna Wesley's definition of sin, which is probably the best definition of sin I have ever seen. And her definition of sin had two aspects to it. 
The first part is that sin is anything that feeds our flesh life, anything that feeds our lust, our evil desires, our evil tendencies, hmm. and that sin is anything that takes us away from Jesus or robs us of a, of a true, pure hunger after God. Anything that begins to move us away from God in any way, doesn't matter if it's good or not, is going to ultimately become sin to us. Mm-hmm. So you can have a guy that plays golf, and there's nothing evil about golf, unless, of course, it starts taking him away from Jesus. If it starts taking him away from time that he should be in the Word or in the place of prayer or fellowship in church, or if it's something that begins to feed his pride. So something that is in and of itself that can be innocent can become very wicked with a wrong desire that's behind it. Now, when you look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, and this happens to be with the Laodicean church, and people are very familiar with the verse, and, and it's the idea of uh, God confronting the Laodiceans because they were wretched, poor, blind, miserable, and naked, and they didn't understand it. They were blind and oblivious to the reality of what they were because of opening themselves up to compromise, because that would be a compromised church. Mm. And they were lukewarm. They allowed this compromise, this worldliness into them. And then he confronted them saying, you don't understand these things. You don't understand how blind you are. You think you got it all together, but yet here you are, worldly, self-absorbed, living to satisfy your fleshly desires. And as a result, you are moving further and further away from me. Then you have Luke chapter 21, verses 34 and 35. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that's a very interesting verse because it tells us to be on our guard, to be mindful, to pay attention because these things can creep into the life. They can just subtly get in there and start getting a hold of us and capture our affections and our desires. And when we allow our heart to be moved away from fellowship with God, we start replacing it with idols. And these idols can capture our heart. They can grab hold of it and make it very hard for us to return to the Lord because these things uh, bring a coldness and a hardness in our heart. As you talk about that, where good things can become sinful desires and then lead to bondage and um, really take us away from the Lord, that obviously is one camp of people. And that's the, that's the camp that we deal with a lot here at Pure Life, people whose lives are completely overrun by an idol. Um, and obviously, there's only one way to deal with something like that, and that is repentance. And we've dealt with that a couple of different times on a, at a pretty serious level, so I'm not going to—I won't go there right now. I want to I talk about a different group of people. This is a, a group of people who are really striving to know the Lord, and um, they want they want to know how do I keep these desires in check so that I don't cross into a sinful lifestyle. Well, that's a very good question, and it's a very involved one. But I'll try and make it really simple, and I'm going to touch on three particular points here. The first one comes out of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'll just give it to you in my own words. It's where Paul tells us to give our lives as a living sacrifice, not be conformed to this world, but allow the Lord to transform our mind. Mm -hmm. And then we will know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what we see in those two verses is if we want to know God's will, there's only one way to know God's will, and that's to live surrendered. 
what Paul's talking about in that verse is the surrendered life. Hmm. So how do we bring our desires into control? We have to really want to live surrendered. We have to really want to walk in a place that's pleasing to God. And to do that, we have to have this transformation in how we think so that we can begin to think differently. Naturally, we're going to think like the world, which is going to move us to worldliness and these evil desires. But when we begin to fix our mind and our heart on Jesus, then we're going to begin to think very differently and act very differently. The second aspect of it comes out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. You are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I think it's very safe to say that this is God's will for every person. Mm-hmm. And so what we see here is what we could call the crucified life. We cannot live surrendered to Jesus and not die to self. Mm-hmm. We have to die to self. The two are, are so woven to each other that you can't separate them. So if you're going to live surrendered, you are going to have to die to your fleshly desires and those things that will war against your soul, mm-hmm. that will war against your fellowship with God. And so... Paul gives us something here that's very interesting, a pattern that goes on that isn't to be a works-based type of thing, but is really the relational aspect of it, that we are to put off that which is contrary to God, and then to put on Christ, to put on that which he alone gives us that is based in his character. And that's Mm -hmm. about a Christ-like life then. And so it's a, a, a process that's there that we can do in small little ways, whether it's a, we have this tendency to lie or stretch the truth, which is the same thing, or whether it's bigger things, that it's you know the lust and perversion or, or hatred or whatever it may be, that they are all dealt with in the same way. We have to want to surrender, and when we want to surrender, then we will go through this process of dying to the sin, putting it off, allowing God to transform our way of thinking, and then putting on Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, the final one, and I would say this in the end is the greatest one, but yet the other two are going to be an integral part of developing this, and that's the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Until we love God, we're not going to have the desire to die to our sinful desires. I mean, you can be religious and put off certain things, but you're still going to be driven by your own lust and your own pride and all those Mm -hmm. other things. There must be a better love than the love of self and the love of praise of people or pride or possessions or whatever, and that better love can only be Jesus. It has to be Jesus. And when we really start loving him, then we find surrender to be something beautiful and something wonderful and something we really want in our life. And when we look at loving Jesus and learning how to surrender— then what we see is this crucified life he calls us to is not this ugly thing of, I got to put this off, I got to die to this. But now you see it as an avenue of fellowship with God to draw nearer to him. So you want to die to these things that break fellowship with him. You want to die to the desires and these drives that can be in us that are hostile to God because you are tasting and seeing that God is good and you want that nearness with him as a result. So this love of God, which is really what we were created to uh, to do, to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, where the fall of Adam and Eve went and ultimately twisted that, and Jesus dying on the cross was to restore that place that we could love him with everything once again, which comes through his grace. And so when we love him, and the more we love him, the deeper our surrender can be, and the deeper our surrender can be, 
the deeper our surrender is, the more we will die to our sinful desires and ambitions and dreams and wants and come to that place of sweet surrender to him in a deeper way again. And the cycle keeps going as our love goes deeper. Hmm. I'm glad that you you mentioned something early on about um, it not being a, th- a thing of legalism, but a-, a relational aspect. And I'm glad you brought that up because um, in today's culture, in today's Christian culture, it seems that there is this fairly strong trend, which is that any call to deny self, to repent, to put off, is automatically branded legalism. And I don't want to talk about that necessarily right now because that's just patently false. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but um, how do you? How would a person keep that process from being legalistic? Well, they have to focus on the relationship, and they have to guard their heart enough and understand their heart. Be willing to pray uh, Psalms one thirty nine. That is, search me, O God, and that they have to want to understand their heart enough to see where it is in loving God. Uh, We all have these wandering hearts. Uh, To go against it, we really need divine grace, and so we have to look at our life and be willing to go to Jesus and say, help me to love you. And I do that all the time. I try to gauge my heart. When I start seeing my heart get a little cold, I begin to cry out to him, help me to love you, Jesus. Help me to love you. I don't want to do what Paul said. He said he feared lest he become a castaway. Why why do you think that in the in the prevailing church culture today why has this passionate wholehearted love for Jesus been so downplayed well i don't think there's one simple answer for that um it goes back to laodicea in uh, revelation chapter 3 but how does a how does a people become lukewarm and even when you look at the other churches that the lord had uh, John dictate a letter to for each of those seven churches. Uh, out of the seven churches, five of them he rebuked. And how is it that each of those churches fell into those particular sins, two of which were sexual sins that they had fallen into? How do they do that? And so it has to be what is really the very first church that he dealt with, which was Ephesus. And the accusation God brought against Ephesus was that they had forsaken their first love. And that word forsake in the Greek is a word that's used for divorce. And so the, first, the word forsake is not that they lost. And you hear a lot of preachers by accident say, oh, they lost their first love. And there's no sin in losing something. But to forsake it is to go out and to play a harlot, is to be an adulteress. And so that's what happened. That was the accusation. You went out and you, you played the spiritual prostitute. You gave yourself to other loves. When I was to be the center of your life, the passion of your life, you began to be passionate about other things in this world, and you took your, your affection off of me and put it onto these things. And so that's a very dangerous thing, and it creeps in so, so, so subtly. It is dangerous, and that's why we have to guard our heart. We have to pay close attention to it. And eternity is worth it. I guarantee you, if you guard your heart now, you'll be very glad you did a million years from now. But if you don't guard your heart now, you don't know where the wickedness of your heart will take you, which could be down some very dangerous paths and ultimately cost you your soul. And so the wisdom of, of protecting our life by, keep, by being mindful of our life and where we're at is important by looking at the Word, understanding the Word, being sensitive to our spiritual life with Jesus, having a life of prayer where we are seeking the face of God 
and begin to understand who we are and cry out to him for the change that is uh, constantly needed in our life. Pastor Steve told us that deception is only effective when we want the thing being offered to us. We're vulnerable because something is wrong with our desires. So the way to guard against deception is to carefully guard our desires so that we learn to love and esteem what God himself loves and esteems. But what if we're deceived about what God wants? What if we cherish and cultivate certain desires only to find out that God detests them? We talked to four of our residential program counselors because we wanted to know what lies they had believed about God before coming to Pure Life and what had to change in order for them to come out of those deceptions. The first thing, they had to be convinced that God did not believe that they were good people. And it's kind of this overall attitude that God is okay with where I'm at spiritually. He knows I could grow more spiritually, but overall my spiritual life is good enough for him. So recognizing truth in the inner part of my heart was first seeing that I was the sinner before a holy God. The Bible is so clear. There is none righteous, not even one. How can a professing Christian even begin to believe that he or she is good? Well, you see, when we measure ourselves according to our definitions of goodness, it's easy for us to believe horrible lies about our spiritual condition and about God's perspectives about us. Holiness means being separate. There's a reason why God is separate from his creation because we're sinners. Um, you know, when you really see who God is, it's just like, wow, you know, it's just, you, ha you, you come into contact with, you know, I'm a great sinner. Where, you know, you get people who um, believe that, well, God's grace will cover my sins, not understanding that God's a holy God and that never is never gonna change. And God's grace is meant to keep us from sinning, not to, allow us or enable us to sin more or give us a license to sin. When we get a true sight of how holy God is, how good he is, how righteous he is, it will leave us crying out, I am a wretched man. There is nothing good in me. Some of us believe that this kind of desperation, this poverty, this brokenness is a bad thing that God would never want us to have that view of ourselves. And again, how could a professing Christian believe that? Like people are so illiterate in what, what the Bible actually says about who God is. So they have like a mixture of what they want and then they have a little smatterings of scripture. Well, I guess it's probably true of most of us that came out of sexual sin that we really didn't value the Word of God. I mean, I know I didn't read it the years that I was in my sin. Um, when you're on a daily basis in God's Word, there's something that is going to happen to you one way or another. You're either going to harden or you're going to soften, okay, because you're coming in contact with truth. 
Bathing ourselves in the Word of God is a must. We have to know for ourselves what God desires so that we can be conformed to them. But this begs the question, if so many of us grew up in church, going to Sunday school, youth groups, small groups, even some of us pursued seminary degrees, how is it that we are ignorant of the character of God? And so people can know, they can spout off the right answers, but it's different when you come in contact with those attributes for yourself. Okay, when you're seeing them in scripture, it's one thing to hear it in a sermon, but it's another thing to be in your own quiet time with the Lord and, and come into God's righteousness. Again, it was the truth of the word of God that showed me a different picture that I needed more than just an external change or some mental knowledge. I had to really repent, forsake my sin, and the word of God even showed me that the relationship I thought I had with God really was judged to be dead. So when I saw that in the Word and in my life, that really gave me a sense of desperation to change. Acquiring head knowledge isn't enough. But as we go to the Word in desperation with a sight of ourselves as poor, needy sinners, as we hunger and thirst to know God intimately and desire to be transformed into the image of Jesus, Scripture begins to take on a new meaning for us. It isn't just a religious activity. It's a doorway into God. You really do begin to experience what it's like for the Word of God to sustain you and you begin to anticipate the time where you're going to have that word speak to you. It's just nourishing you with the truth. And yeah, I think you, the more you experience that, the more you do learn to look forward to it and appreciate it and want it as a daily part of your life. I'm eight years in with the Lord from when I came out of my sexual sin. Um, but I know I love the Word. I look forward to getting in the Bible. The Word is a barometer for me. Um, whenever I want to kind of shy away from God's Word, I know there's something off in me um, because it shines light on who I really am. Um, so I know that I have to have an ongoing relationship with God's Word to stay on track. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's something that has to be in my life. It's not something that I can, you know, just kind of play with. Or, you know, it's nice to read the Word. No, I have to be in the Word on a daily basis. Honestly, when you're coming out of deception and beginning to have an intimate relationship with the Holy God, it's not comfortable. Suddenly you start to find that this God isn't just interested in you feeling good all the time and having everything go your way. You find that he's willing to cause you pain if it will turn out for your eternal good. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. 
and he exhorts me not to be faint in heart when I'm reproved by him. Okay, and it's just like when you come to the truth, yeah, it's painful, but those lies have to come down. Those lies are standing in the way. This desire of God for our good, this burning and passionate love to see us become pure and holy in his sight, this is something that many of us have never encountered before. And honestly, we probably struggle to call it love because it's so different from everything the world defines as love. How God dealt with dismantling those lies, um, I would say like with a hammer and a bat and like he just started going to town. He didn't really care about when I would say, well, that's enough, I don't wanna go any further. He wouldn't, he, he's, not, he's like, no, I'm saving your soul. You know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do what needs to be done in your life. Because it's a promise that God loves those whom he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Okay, and the Lord loves us enough that he will do whatever it takes. Okay, like a parent whose kid's walking, crawling towards the road. You know, the, the parent looks like a maniac. He's yelling, he's screaming, he's running, he grabs the kid. Okay, or even like he has to push him out of the way and the kid gets injured a little bit. Okay, but the parent's like, I am saving your life. You have no idea what's going on. There are so many attributes of God that we need redefined in the light of his truth, his love, his mercy, his grace. I used his mercy and grace as legitimacy for my sin. I saw it basically as a cheap form of forgiveness, that he was allowing me to continue in sin. He hadn't killed me but his mercy was to draw out from me my neediness for him, to show me how despicable and desperately wicked I was. That was mercy. This process of being purified of our sinful desires is lifelong. We go through seasons of discipline again and again as the Lord digs deeper into our hearts to bring to light other deceptive, sinful ways that have remained hidden in our hearts. But each time we pass through this refiner's fire, we come into a new revelation of the character of God. And as we know him more, we begin to know what it is that he truly desires. Well, I have learned that God desires a heart that is surrendered to him, willing to give their life and lay it down and allow Jesus Christ to be glorified through their life. I believe God desires real repentance and faith and that leads to an actual experience with God and produces a changed life. Purity, that's what he wants. He said, be holy as I'm holy, be perfect as I am perfect. We can only do that because we are clothed in Christ. You know, it's just like through our failures, there's just this God of mercy who is just rising above failures and frailties and still claiming a people for himself. And it's just amazing to me. We know we're being lied to. But the problem is, 
Many people try to overcome the deception by looking to themselves, trusting that they'll be able to find the truth by their own intellect, intuition, and fortitude. This is fatal because there are so many things that cloud our judgment. Our own desires cloud our judgment. The message of the secular culture will cloud our judgment. Even the American church culture will cloud our judgment. You can see, can't you, why we are so vulnerable? That's why, as our counselors pointed out, it's essential that we recognize our great need and run helplessly into the arms of Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth. Thanks for joining us for World of Lies. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.